Well, hey, Genesis 18 is going to be our primary text this morning. If you want to go ahead and be making your way there, uh, we're going to dive right in. If you missed last week, today is kind of part two uh, to last week's sermon. And so we're, we're just going to jump right into it. But I'll, the first three or four minutes is going to serve as recap for all of us to make sure we're all on the same page moving forward. In Genesis 18, we see that the Lord once again confirms to Abraham that he is going to have a son. Abraham, at a hundred years old, is finally becoming a father as a result of a promise that God had made him almost 25 years earlier, or right out 25 years earlier. So in essence, God is choosing Abraham to be the father of the Israelite nation, to be the one who is the patriarch of God's chosen people. And they're chosen not to be blessed, although they are blessed. They're chosen really for responsibility because it's through the nation of Israel that God is going to bless the entire world because through the Israelites, God is going to uh, tell the whole world his character, his nature, and his attributes, and he's going to use the Israelite nation to do it. And so uh, in Genesis 18, the Lord and, and two angels have come to meet with Abraham to once again confirm this promise to them and just remind Abraham of just this incredible task that he has been given. I mean, think about it. I mean, he is, again, the patriarch of God's chosen people. That's the responsibility that has just uh, landed upon him. And so I think about him, you know, being a dad and trying to raise his kids to, to do that task, right? To, to bless the whole world, to reveal the character, nature, and attributes of God. And then I think about myself and I've got three kids and I'm like, I just want them to get a job and get out of jail or not, not get out, not, not get in jail. And so like, like, like that's the bar and apparently I'm not going to hit it. And so like, that's what I'm going for. Like that's, that's that's my, that's my aim there. And so like, I think about Abraham and I'm like, man, um, like what kind of an, an incredible task responsibility has, has he been shouldered with, right? And so that begs the question, um, what kind of father is Abraham going to be and what is he going to teach his kids? What kind of father is Abraham going to be and what will he teach his children and his grandchildren? Again, if you were with us last week, the, the first part of Genesis 18, Abraham has, has hosted the Lord and, and these two angels in his home. He's, he's welcomed them into his home. He, he's shown hospitality. He's brought them into his care. Now, while he's doing this, the Lord and the two angels, again, confirm the, pro, the promise, but they basically tell him, look, it's happening now, right? Within the year, you will have a child. So it's basically, get ready, Abraham. There's no more waiting. The baby is coming, all right? So this is kind of like, you know, prepare the nest. If if you've been there, gone through, gone through that, like this is, hey, it's happening, it's going. But then the conversation takes a dramatic shift. And this is where we drop in the text. Genesis 18, verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord." Okay, so it's congratulations, you're having a baby. I'm about to wipe these two cities off the face of the earth. So like it, there's a, a dramatic change there. Right? I mean, talk about like killing the mood. It's like happy, 
what? And, and you know, all this happening in such short, close proximity to one another. It's, 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 you know, congratulations. Oh, by the way, this is about to happen. Their sin is so great. Their sin is so grievous that the Lord determines the just, the right course of action is to bring judgment down upon them. And I do think that would be an awkward moment, like for Abraham. How do I process all this? I'm happy. I'm joyous. But I know Sodom, I know Gomorrah. He has family that lives in those towns. And so no doubt there has to be a, definitely a sense of, of sadness and remorse for, for what is to befall these cities. And really the, the conversation kind of proves awkward from start to finish or, or really strange from start to finish. Because again, not only is he, is he telling Abraham he's going to have a child, but you can't really tell who the Lord's talking to on the first read through. Is he talking to these two other angels? Uh, like verse 17, when he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Is he talking to these two other angels? Is he thinking out loud? Or with this being said, with an earshot of Abraham, uh, is this for Abraham? And I, and I think that's where we start to get some traction with the text, because I do think this is said for the benefit of Abraham. Because he, you know, even the question, shall I hide from Abraham? No, it's not. he's not gonna hide it from Abraham. He's going to let Abraham know what the Lord is, is planning on doing to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so with that, it's really an invitation for Abraham to come into the conversation. It's an invitation to Abraham to pray in response to what the Lord has revealed to him. Once more, this statement is going to give us insight into the type of father that God wants Abraham to be and the type of lessons that God wants Abraham to teach his children. And it's found in verse 19, which we've read, but this is a critical verse for us, so hold this one in your head. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him. The Lord wants Abraham to be the type of father who does what is right and just and train his children to do the same. So what we're seeing is, is not only does, does the Lord give an opening to Abraham to come in the conversation, not only does he give an invitation to come into it and, and pray to him, but the Lord also gives guidelines to Abraham for what to pray or how to pray and that his prayers should be focused on doing what is right and doing what is just. These are the values, these are the truths, these are the ethics that God wants to mark Abraham and his family, the Israelite nation. And so God invites him to pray and even gives him guidance for how to do it. And it seems very quickly that Abraham is going to learn the lesson, that he's going to begin putting these, uh, these virtues into practice. Because we, we see it a bit in verse 22, when it said, The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Key phrase for us. Abraham remains standing before the Lord. Okay, this is the scene in the movie when the, like the president or the boss or the CEO, you know, they're in the boardroom, he issues his pronouncement and then is like, okay, go do it. And everybody leaves the room, but that one guy, right? That, that one guy stays and you know that he's gonna ask a question. You know that he's gonna take issue with what was just said. And so you kind of lean into the scene a little bit because you're like, oh, how's this gonna play out? Like, what, like what's he gonna say? How's he gonna say it? How's the president, how's the CEO gonna respond to it? And so you're, you're, you kind of lean in a little bit because what he says next is going to, to show how the, just the nature of his challenge, the nature of his question, question is going to really kind of determine how the rest of it is going to go. And we see that it's the same thing that's happening here. Abraham remains standing before the Lord because he's about to question whether or not what the Lord is doing, is it right and is it just? Abraham remains standing before the Lord. 
One other bit about this phrase to help us uh, just in in the text. This lets us know um, that he remains standing before the Lord, that everything happening in Genesis 18 is part of one story, part of one instance, part of one narrative that's unfolding. And there's a lot happening in this text. That's why I had to bust it up over two days. You know, there's there's the welcoming into the home. There's the practicing of the hospitality. There's the birth announcement. There's a death sentence. And now there's a court of appeals that is taking place in this. But, and, and with this, with Abraham remaining standing before the Lord, it shows us that he's already learning the virtues that God wants Abraham to grow in, but also that God wants Abraham to teach to his children. Because look at how Abraham responds. Verse 23, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So Abraham protests, look, this is going to be unjust. This is going to be an unrighteous act, God, if you sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And so Abraham, in essence, he's, he's praying in a way to where he's appealing to the righteousness and the justice of God. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you're a gracious God, you're a merciful God, why don't you relent? He doesn't pray that, those prayers. No, he's appealing to the righteousness and the justice of God in his prayer. And in fact, throughout the course of his appeal, Abraham's going to use the, the root of the Hebrew word for righteous. He's going to use it six, seven times as, as he's uh, having this conversation with the Lord, showing us righteousness, theme of the text. Uh, from start to finish. And that rhetorical question in verse 25, where he says, uh, far be it from you, will not the judge of the Lord do what is right? Abraham knows the Lord is just. He knows that he's going to do what is right. And, and so these are, it's the very things that he's appealing to, to perhaps uh, see if God will, will stay his judgment. And so it's, again, it's the virtues that God wants Abraham to grow in, to teach his children, and he's already practicing them. He's hearing about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's heartbroken by it. He's heartbroken. He doesn't want those who are innocent to be victims of God's judgment. To Abraham, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. So Abraham, understanding as much as he can from his human point of view, he hears the Lord's plans and he questions how just it is. Now, again, back in the movie scene. So like there's the, the, you know, the, the person questions the president, questions the boss, and you hear it and it's like, oh, what's the response gonna be? Like, is the president gonna be like, all right, you're off my cabinet. You know, is the boss gonna be like, you're fired? Or how dare you question me? Like, is there gonna be that, that pushback, that elbow thrown? And, and so you kind of lean in. Here we see that God does not respond in judgment. We see God does not re- respond in anger. And with that, we see it really does give more indication that this whole thing is an invitation to Abraham to enter the conversation. It's an invitation to, to, to go and, and to speak with the Lord because what happens, the Lord listens. The Lord actually responds to Abraham and hears his request and really even responds positively to this request and all the requests that follow. Look at verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 here, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found? 
He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So Abraham goes from 50 all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, yes, all along the way. Yes, yes, yes. And eventually it resides with 10. If 10 can be found, I'll spare Sodom, I'll spare, I'll spare Gomorrah. And I think at this point, Abraham probably feels like, okay, we're, we're safe. Because my nephew Lot is in Sodom. Lot and his family are in these cities, in these towns. Surely they either have enough or there's one other family, at least in these two towns where uh, we've done enough to delay God's wrath and God's judgment. But you know the story. If we were to keep reading in Genesis 19, we see um, that 10 could not be found. Uh, that Lot's family is, is not enough. And, and really Genesis 19, there, there's multiple verses that accentuate just how the whole town um, was, was full of evil and sin. And it prompts God's judgment. And so God moves. And we see the judgment befall Sodom and Gomorrah. Which begs the question... Why did God even have this conversation with Abraham? Because he knows the whole time that there's not 10 people righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Like God knows how it's going to end, right? So why, why the conversation? Like God, God knows there's not 10 righteous people, but Abraham doesn't. So why the conversation? Okay, catch this. If Abraham doesn't make his plea, Right? If Abraham doesn't accept God's invitation into the conversation, if he doesn't accept responsibility of speaking on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and the righteous people he hoped lived among them, if Abraham doesn't speak up, God's judgment, God's justice, God's punishment, it's still going to be done, but only God will know that it's just. There needed to be this court of appeals. There needed to be a human representative who advocated for a human justice that could be perceived by fallen, sinful human beings. There needed to be one who interceded on behalf of the other because that's the very thing that God wants Abraham to learn and to demonstrate and to teach his kids that he would do what is right, that he would do what is just, that he would advocate for it, that he would intercede on behalf of others in this pursuit. And so what this conversation does is it trains Abraham to ask the right and appropriate questions. It trains Abraham to ask questions that are focused on doing what is right and doing what is just. And if you'll remember, this instance, again, happens in the context of Abraham becoming a father and having a child. And so this interaction also teaches Abraham how to be a parent. It teaches Abraham that he would raise questions, who, he would raise questions, that he would raise children who will ask right and appropriate questions. See, I've noticed, uh, again, I've got three kids. My oldest is six. I'm not an expert on parenthood by any stretch. But I, I have noticed that, that in my relationships with them, that when I am stressed, when I'm tired, when I'm out of understanding, when I am out of patience, it's there where the only thing I want my kids to do is just, just, do what you're told. Just do what you're told and don't question me, right? Just do what I'm telling you to do. End of story. And, and so many times in, the, in that moment, I'm, I'm not parenting, right? I'm not so much a parent as I am a, a dictator there. And that action, when repeated over and over and over and over and over again, that action can actually thwart their growth and desensitize them and make them disengage because they don't understand what they're doing. 
They don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand why they should do it. They don't understand how it's necessary. If I want them to know how to live with and buy the values that I want to instill with them and do it when I'm not in the room, then, then, then I need to be engaging them and parenting them in such a way to help them ask the questions so that they know what to do, how to do what is right and just, right? If questions never come, they're already well down the path of simply accepting the status quo. Again, Abraham, knowing that God is just, knowing that God is righteous, knowing that God is all wise, all right? He could have, have heard this decree from God and said, okay, you know what? You're right, you know what's best light them up. Like that could have been his response in this moment. And yes, God's will would have been done, but no one would have understood how God's actions were just. It's a divine justice that's beyond human comprehension. Now the questions for Abraham, even the questions that express a type of solidarity with sinful Sodom and Gomorrah, what it does is it helps Abraham embrace his role as human. All the while, still working to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right, by doing what is just. And and it fosters empathy, love, devotion, and commitment from Abraham to those around him, all the while still ultimately, ultimately believing in the justice, righteousness, and the sovereignty of God. Tracking with me on this, by, by God inviting Abraham into the conversation, leading him and teaching him to question in light of the righteousness and justice that God wants him to live by, God teaches Abraham what it is to teach a child to grow in challenging the existing scheme of things. Because it's only through the questioning. It's through the questioning and the challenging of things that children accept responsibility, understand, grow, mature, and eventually can serve God as co-labors with Christ, continuing in the redeeming work that he's doing. So what we're seeing in the text, what we're seeing in the scripture is that to be a father is to teach a child how to question, how to challenge, how to speak up when they see a perceived injustice, how to intercede on behalf of others when they discern a need. Again, we... Like we, we believe in, in, in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is sovereign, that one day there will be all brokenness, uh, all evilness, all sinfulness will be judged, redeemed, restored, and made new. We believe that God's ways are always right, that they are just, and that we will one day fully understand and comprehend all of God's good and sovereign plan. But hear me on this. Hear me, and, and hear, hear, the, hear the full paragraph before you erupt on this, because you rightfully should, should bow up on this sentence, all right? There is a shadow side to the belief in the sovereignty of God. And that is when that belief is expressed in such a way to where one becomes callous to the suffering of people as saying it's just a necessary part of the process of God's ultimate revelation of his good. Like when, that, when there's a broken expression of the belief in the sovereignty of God to where it, 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 it deafens one's ears and hardens one's heart to the suffering of your neighbor, like when, when there's inaction, then you've abandoned the role that God has given to you as his child. You have abdicated your responsibility that was given to you by a sovereign God for you to do what is right, for you to do what is just, for you to question what is broken, for you to protest what is unjust in this world. You see, when, when, when the questions, when, when, we, when we question the injustices that we see in this world, when we question suffering and evil and heartbreak and, and brokenness and loss, when we question all that, when we refuse to accept the world as it is, when we refuse to accept, we, we refuse to accept the status quo because we know it is not as it should be and we know that it is not as it is becoming. Remember, we, we believe 
our, our sovereign God said that his kingdom is like a mustard seed that starts small, that is growing into its fullness. So you see, when we question, when we protest, when we confront, when we protest that which is uh, not as it should be, when we're protesting that which is not as it should be, we're expressing our faith in the plan of a sovereign God who is redeeming, restoring, and growing his perfect kingdom. Um, on Father's Day, again, I'm very aware of the task that God has given me in raising my three boys. And I, 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 want, them, I, I, I want them to know the Lord and walk in his ways. They are my first ministry before you guys, right? Like, I love you. I love this church. And, and, and one day, hopefully years from now, you'll have another pastor. But my kids are my kids, and I'm their dad. And that's the role that I don't get to leave. And I would never want to leave it. Like I, am, I'm with, like, I am their dad for life. Sorry, that's the lottery ticket they drew. But, but I, I am their dad, right? And so I, like, I'm well aware of the task that I have been given in that. And so like, I, want them, I want them to grow up to be men of God. And I know I said I want them to you know, get a job and get out of jail. Is that what I said? <laughs> like, you know, I, I know I said that, but it's, it's, it's more than that, right? I, I want them to know God's word and walk in its wisdom. So with that, I want to raise my boys to where they know how to stand up for themselves, but also they know how to stand up for others. I want to raise my boys in such a way to where they know how to take responsibility for themselves, but also take responsibility for those that God's placed in their life, because that's part of walking in the wisdom of God's word. Jesus teaches us the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love our neighbor. And so like, I want both of those to inform the other in their life. I want there to be such a love for, for their neighbor that it deepens their love of God, their appreciation for who he is, his good and perfect and sovereign plan. I want there to be such a love for God that it deepens their love for their neighbor to where they feel and act on the responsibility they have towards their neighbor as well. Because in the Christian faith, when we know this, accept this, and act on that responsibility, it's called intercession. It's called intercession. It's acting on behalf of someone else. And often in church world, you hear intercessory prayer. Someone has a need in their life, and the church feeling responsible to them because of their love and devotion to them. Go to the Lord for them on their behalf. Uh, what we did earlier, praying for Lauren and praying for the student ministry. That's ways that we intercede for one another. But scripture lets us know this is part of Christ's ongoing ministry to us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says this of Christ. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christ intercedes for us now. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He knows the needs in your life. He knows what's going on in your heart and your soul. And he is praying to God the Father on your behalf. He's interceding for you right now, part of his ongoing ministry. But we also know that Christ interceded for us with his work on the cross. It was there at that sacrificial act where there's both the simultaneous act of supreme grace and mercy at the same time while that act was both infinitely just and righteous. Because our sin earned for us death, right? We, we, we believe this. We believe our sin earned for us death, separation from God, and eternal judgment. 
But God desires that none would perish, that all would have a life. And so he sends Jesus to enact that will, to, to enact that will. And in essence, show the world that the status quo is not as it should be. And to, and to show us what it is that God wants us to become. And so Jesus lives a sinless life so that our sins could be given to him. And by faith, our sins could be given to him that, and his righteousness could return so that that could be gone and we could be made new. That's why it's a supreme act of grace and mercy that he would do such a thing that he would take our sins onto himself. But as well, when he's on the cross, when he dies on our behalf, his need for justice and righteousness in response to our sin, that satisfies his holy character, his death on, on the cross. At the same time, when he conquers the grave, he demonstrates how the debt has been satisfied. He shows what God the Father has done on behalf of his children. And Jesus shows those who believe what the world is to be, a place submitted to, trusting in and resting in the perfect kingdom of an almighty sovereign God. You see, when we place our faith in him, when we respond to him by faith, it should lead us to question the status quo of our own heart. It should lead us to question the status quo of our heart, to repent of sin, to repent of our pride, of our greed, of our lust, of our indifference, of our racism, of our classism, of our apathy. It should, it should lead us to repent of all brokenness and evil that resides within and trust in him and him alone. It should also lead us to protest and challenge the brokenness and evilness that we see in the world, knowing that it is not as it should be. Because Christ, the one who can restore and redeem the brokenness in our own lives, is the one that can bring hope and restoration to the society around us. It's how we accept the responsibility that Christ has entrusted to us by faith and partner with him in the work that he is doing. Are you with me? You take a breath. We're walking through or, or wading through the deep end of this. But it comes down to this. We become more like Christ when we take responsibility for others and intercede on their behalf. We become more like Christ when we take responsibility for others and intercede on their behalf. Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, hoping and praying that 10 would be found to spare the whole city. When we question the status quo of a broken and fallen world, when we express our faith as protest against that which currently is in anticipation of what God is and will do, we join Christ in the redeeming work that he is doing in this world. Fathers, this is your charge. This is the way that you can engage what's broken in the world around us. This is the way that you can pick up that fight, fight for your family, fight for your kids, fight for your neighbors, and protest what's broken, what's unjust. When we see this happening in the world around us, and there's so many different expressions of it. There's so many ways that you can see it in our own community and on the world stage at large, but this is a way that we can engage that brokenness and say, this is not as it should be. It's a way that we can pursue what it is to do what is right and just. Fathers, this is your charge. Do this yourself and give your children the courage to do the same. I believe it's also something that everyone should do, whether we're a father or not, parent training a child or not. I think it is an aspect of our faith that we are called to practice and help one another cultivate and develop in our lives because it's one of the ways that we draw people to the hope of Jesus. When we intercede for others, we help them know and understand how Christ has interceded for them. Asking the right questions leads us to take responsibility and moves us to intercede on behalf of others. It's a way that as much as our human minds can comprehend, it's a way that we 
keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. It's a way that we demonstrate our faith that the Lord currently is and will one day bring about all that he has promised according to his good and perfect and sovereign plan. Father's Day. I told you we'd look at Sodom and Gomorrah because I believe it's a text that God is teaching Abraham how he wants Abraham to live, but he's also teaching Abraham how to be a father, how to train his children to do what is right and just, keep the way of the Lord and show all uh, the hope and the faith that God will honor his promise and bring to fruition all that he has planned. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the instruction therein, God. Even texts such as this that can be um, weighty and and, and dense and full, uh, that that sometimes we just can get lost in our questioning of the text. But God, you work, you move, uh, you show us how your word is right and true and useful for correction, uh, rebuking, and, and training us in your ways and in your instruction. So God, I pray that we would yield to it. I pray that we would, would yield to the uh, wisdom of your word, not to the wisdom of a sermon, not anything that I've said, Lord God, but to you and to how your word speaks to us and the prompting and correction of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. I pray that we would yield to that so that our lives will be changed because we've met with you. We've encountered your hope and we've encountered your truth. God, may it give us a courage to do what is right and just and for those actions to be grounded in the work that Christ has done on our behalf. So God, we love you. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.